You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In the next hour, we will examine some of the modern philosophers who develop Descartes' basic ideas in a political and religious direction. Thomas Hobbes, who was writing at the same time as Descartes, so it's not necessarily a direct influence, but we'll see some of the same ideas at work. And what the implications are for this modern idea of philosophy for politics, and then briefly look at Spinoza, who takes it out in a religious direction. And as I mentioned before, end by considering Pascal. Just to summarize from Maritain's account of Descartes and the problems of modern philosophy, he gives us three basic issues that we will see repeated throughout modern philosophy, and they are that modern philosophy is a form of idealism, a form of rationalism, and third, has a dualism. Now, what are these isms? The idealism is really the core notion that the mind does not know things, that it is not oriented to being. Its opposite is realism. The philosophy of Thomas and of Aristotle is epistemological realism, that the mind knows things, that its first contact is not with contents of our own mind or the idea, but it sees through the idea through its cognitive intentions, it is in contact with things. With Descartes, we have this contraction into the mind and consciousness. This focus on the knower and the self, which is part of the idealist position. Rationalism could also be called the mathematicism. It is using one method for all inquiry. It is advocating a unitary method, a method following mathematical physics, which must exclude faith and spirituality, but also plane down the great diversity of approaches to reality through natural philosophy, metaphysics, let alone the poetic, the moral, and the political. Rationalism seeks this one method from which it can crank out, deduce, or make a hypothesis to explain every area of life. As Maritain says in his criticism of Descartes, rationalism will inevitably go between pantheism and agnosticism because the knowledge of God is a challenge to the human mind, both through metaphysics and through revelation. 
So the tendency will be to either deny that there is any knowledge possible or not care about that small but valuable amount of knowledge that we can have of divine things. That would be the agnostic side. Or it swings in the other direction, which we'll see in Spinoza, which is pantheism. That is an identification of God with one's own clear and distinct ideas or representation of the universe. The third feature, of course, of this Cartesian philosophy is dualism, this separating of the world into the mechanism of the body and consciousness or mind on the other hand. So the problem of how these two interact, there is the constant danger of the reduction of the human to one or the other pole. And again, we'll see in Hobbes the reduction to the mechanical side. In Spinoza, the spiritualizing of man and an extreme stoicism. It leaves no room for the effective life and love. And often will mean human freedom disappears. As much as the moderns are striving for freedom, the mechanistic model leaves man open to various forms of pressure and manipulation. So let's look at one elaboration of the modern idea of the solitary self in opposition to the world using a mechanical model. And one of the prime examples is Thomas Hobbes. Hobbes may be one of the most accessible of the modern philosophers. There is a down-to-earth quality to Hobbes, a way of developing his thoughts that appeals to experience. I think part of this is he, as a classic scholar, was very much taken with Thucydides and translated Thucydides' Peloponnesian War which is still a very usable English translation of the text from which Hobbes derives many lessons. I must say, though, through the prism of the modern project, it's a fundamental distortion of what Thucydides is all about. But I'll leave that for a footnote later on. Hobbes also has this great vision. His is more on the material side. Let me read to you. He says in one of his works, it seemed to me there was a single true thing in all the world, and that truth is matter, that we're confronted with matter in motion. He says it's falsified in many ways, a single true thing which is the foundation of those things which we falsely say to be something such flitting things as sleep has, and things which I can multiply by mirrors as I choose, fantasies, offsprings of our brain, nothing without, nothing in the parts within but motion. You see that idea that all there is is a world of extension impinging upon our consciousness. Hobbes takes that with even more rigor than Descartes and we'll see reduces man not to the solitary thinker, but to the solitary appetite or the solitary will. Also like Descartes, he uses mathematical method. He thinks that he will be the new discoverer for the first time of the science of ethics.
that everything done in the past, Aristotle, Plato, Augustine, and Aquinas, they were all marred and not a true account of ethics because they weren't scientifically deduced from the true principles of science. So Hobbes' Leviathan is a deduction of an ethics and politics from the basic hypothesis of mathematical physics or the worldview of mechanism. Now although Hobbes does not speculate a lot about the overall vision like Spinoza does, it will, in addition to being mechanistic, have a certain quality of being monistic, that is having one value, one order, one way, one state, and it'll be again one of the problems that still lingers as part of the crisis of the modern age. So let's just roll through some of Hobbes's Leviathan and see where he starts and where it ends and make a few comparisons along the way to appreciate this quarrel of ancient and modern philosophy, which I think can be outlined with great sharpness in comparing Hobbes and Aristotle, in part because Hobbes makes no bones about it. Hobbes says quite explicitly that Aristotle was wrong on the fundamentals of politics. For example, that man is a social and political being. Hobbes says no, by nature we are selfish and isolated and in fundamental antagonism with others. Aristotle says all men by nature desire to know and that knowing is the great fulfillment of rational life. Hobbes says no, we just seek knowledge for power, sharing that notion with Bacon. We either seek it in vanity to be better than others or he says we seek knowledge for power. So on a number of these items we'll see Hobbes consciously rejects the ancients. In a way, that's what modern philosophy is. The ancients didn't know they were ancients or the medievals that they were medieval. These are the prejudicial categories of the Renaissance and into modern philosophy, that the ancient philosophy is out of date and no longer relevant. And the modern will be the new, starting on a new basis, sweeping things clean. Hobbes also takes that approach of Descartes. So if we sweep everything clean, what will we have for our understanding of human beings? Well, he begins with the notion that human nature is simply a unit or point of desire or appetite, and that we are impelled to seek satisfaction of appetites. So he defines the good as what is pleasant and satisfying. Again, think of the ancient philosophy. Aristotle says there are various meanings to good. One meaning is indeed the pleasurable good, but there's also the useful good. But most of all, ethics must have a respect for the noble good, the bonum anestum the true good or the honest good. The Greek category is the noble good. That's a good beyond pleasure, which designates human excellence. 
and excellence of achievement. Hobbes says the noble is nothing but a sense of honor, and it's part of the fantasy of the human mind to think there is any good beyond satisfaction. So that's another one of his basic premises. He says there is no highest good. You know, ancient philosophy was characterized by the great question as to the highest good. What is the best way of life? What is the best part of the soul? What is the best activity? These were questions that engaged Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, certainly Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, adding on, well, beatitude and knowledge of God through faith and grace as the highest good. Hobbes just asserts there is no highest good, partly because he takes his bearings by this materialistic philosophy that there is no good on earth that will completely satisfy the human being. So he'll say life is nothing but perpetual motion, desire, and satisfaction one after another. And nothing will give rest to the human being. Again, think about the fundamental shift even from ancient to modern physics. If the ancient physics sees rest as the natural state of nature, the rest of fruition or achievement of final cause, and motion is the incompleteness, motion is only understood by reference to rest and achievement. The modern physics flip-flops that. It was a necessary move to understand body and motion, that motion is the natural state, inertia that a thing will remain in motion unless there are outside influences. You see how Hobbes transposes that now onto his understanding of the human. So the human, the natural state is not to seek repose in a higher good, but it is continual motion without end, seeking one satisfaction after another. And power is the key. Power becomes the key for understanding human life. This is the modern theme, is power. Because power designates the ability to control and assure future access to the goods which are satisfying. Hobbes even interprets religion. You know, here's another curious thing about the moderns, by the way, that when we say ancient philosophy and we think of Aristotle and Plato, we can't forget there is a third leg in the tripod, and that is the Epicurean philosophy. Has many similarities and differences with Hobbes, but one of the similarities is that hedonistic definition of the good, that the good is the pleasant. Hobbes was deeply influenced by Lucretius and Epicurus, and as a matter of fact, his account of religion sounds much like the account given by Lucretius, and that is in the Leviathan chapter 12 on religion, he accounts for religion as the fear human beings have about not knowing their future state, their lack of power, their fear of death, poverty, and other calamities. He thinks has led the human mind into superstitions, thinking that, as he calls him, agent invisible or ghost can help 
human beings deal with the future. He says this is a superstition, and what's really behind it is the desire to control the future or to have some assurance about the future. So it's rooted in fear and needs to be turned to a more realistic kind of fear. So what is the more realistic kind of fear that we can have power over? Here's where we're plunged into the heart of the new political science. In chapter 13 of the Leviathan, entitled The Natural Condition of Mankind, Hobbes says that by nature we are equal because of the following. See, here's a great question that Leo Strauss has helped raise about the Declaration. All men are created equal, endowed by their Creator with inalienable rights. Why does Hobbes say we're all equal? If you read chapter 13 of the Leviathan, he says we're equal because we're equally vulnerable. The strong man has to sleep at night so even the weak man can throw a stone on his head. That's the shocking beginnings of modern liberalism, is the equal fear that we have of each other. Not equal in dignity under God, but equal in how we may hurt others. He also says we're equal in our assessment of ourselves. That is, we all think we're equal. Or one will be insulted if they're not treated equally. So you see, here's where this leads, as Hobbes says, in a state of nature, because we are equal, it leads to a state of war. See, the natural condition of mankind is not friendship, as it is for Aristotle. It's not sociality, living in the household, the village, and then on to the polis, which is Aristotle's argument, the reason why we are political by nature. Hobbes will have a curious thing. Politics is totally artificial. It's basically a machine, a technology made by human beings in order to ensure their own peace and their own satisfactions. On Hobbes' account, there are numerous causes of this antagonism between human beings by nature. One is competition for scarce resources. And the ancients knew this. The ancients knew there's a scarcity, which is what leads to injustice. But the ancients had a more complex human being. Humans are animals with bodies who have contentious goods, but we also have souls and are capable of friendship and truth and having common good, a true common good. For Hobbes, there's nothing common. So it's inevitable we're going to fight. The other source of quarrel, he says, is just diffidence or fear of others. We may need to do something to preserve ourselves. And third, he says, glory. Glory is wanting to be better than others or over others. And he thinks that is one of the great causes of war. So the natural state of mankind is a state of war, and it's not a good place to be, he says. In a state of war, there will be no security. There is no industry, no culture, no navigation, no commodious building, no account of time, no arts, and worst of all, continual fear and danger of violent death. 
Hobbes thinks that's where we need to begin. And maybe the most famous line in the quote books is this one. The life of man is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. That is Hobbes' Leviathan 13. That's nature. That is the state of nature. A terrible place to be because of body and motion, appetite, and human conflict. So how do we get out of this? Let me say a little bit more before we figure out how we get out of it. I'll say further on Hobbes's account, in this war of every man against every man, nothing can be unjust. Again, this is chapter 13 of the Leviathan that has to be studied very closely. There's no justice by nature. So even though he develops what's called a natural law theory, it's a complete equivocation to think that's the natural law of Thomas Aquinas. It's not at all. It's a whole new idea of nature. Nature as beginnings. Nature as mechanism. Nature as matter and motion. And in this world of nature, there's no justice. I do what I have to do. He says, I have a right to everything because I'm impelled by a desire to preserve myself and no one can blame me. That's why I have a right. No one can blame me for doing what I have to do to preserve myself. Well, here's the way out. We build on fear. He says, fear of violent death and desire for commodious living. That is a good life. That is a life of comfort will lead me to become rational, to make this social contract, to agree to lay down my right to all things and respect your equal right, because by so doing, I will be preserved in my life, liberty, and property. That's the beginning of modern ethics, the liberal maxim of non-harm. If you agree not to harm me, I will not harm you. It's to my self-interest to make this, and all of political life then will be built up out of this selfishness. Again, it's a magic that occurs, that out of selfishness we will get morality. The problem, of course, is the only restraint then will be the restraint from outside, and that's just what Hobbes says. Liberty is the freedom to move. He says, the freedom of humans is no different from the freedom of that book to fall. Just stay out of my way. Freedom is this negative freedom to pursue your goal and your satisfaction. I recognize, though, the freedom of someone else equal to mine. Now, you see what he may have learned from the Melian dialogue, which is not Thucydides' view, that those who are powerful do what they want and those who are weak must take what they get. Only if there's equal push and pull will there be justice on this account. There is no higher reason for moderation or self-restraint. Plato anticipated this with the Ring of Gyges. I'm not sure that Hobbes has an answer to that problem, that what if one could get away with it? This is Solzhenitsyn's criticism of the bourgeois state that Hobbes has helped to influence. We push the legal laws to their maximum in the name of self-interest. There's no voluntary self-restraint. And worst of all, I would say, about this account in Hobbes in the modern liberal morality, 
is the minimal morality, don't harm others in life, liberty, or property, becomes the defining measure of all morality. We can no longer say that one life is noble and another base. Here again, anything goes as long as you don't harm others. So Leo Strauss coined the phrase that the world of Hobbes and Locke will be the joyless quest for joy. People will be consumers. People will get their satisfactions and there will be public order by which we don't trespass on the space of others. But you see what says to be a liberation is actually a narrowing. In the natural law of Thomas Aquinas, there are various levels of human inclinations that require excellence and protection, such as life, family, fellowship, truth, religion. All of these get reduced to one, which is self-preservation. So here we see in Hobbes really the unfolding of the Cartesian idea in the realm of politics. What it looks like as we've seen is a order based on self-interest and selfishness, assuming that we're all strangers and in our own world who can venture out to make an agreement to have mutual protection but in Hobbes's account, you see, there's the joyless quest for joy, means there's really nothing that is humanly satisfying, nothing that makes the life worth living. And I think, again, we can just think of Socrates as our model here. What is it that makes life worth living? It's got to be more than just staying alive, having your desires satisfied, and so on. So that's a quick overview of the philosophy of Thomas Hobbes. Before we move on to Spinoza and see the modern notion turned out in the direction of religion and metaphysics, I should mention, though, that in this brief overview I've given you of Hobbes, just briefly say something about the title, Leviathan. Leviathan is an artificial man, he says, created by human beings to have this order of the state. And what's interesting is that Hobbes does come to give near divine qualities to the state. Again, one of the ironies of modern philosophy that in the name of liberty, in the name of escape from oppressive authority, we have the logic of Leviathan leading to this sovereign power. In chapter 28 and 29, of the Leviathan, part two, he gets into some qualities of the sovereign. But it's interesting here, he says, the great power of the governor, I compare to Leviathan. Taking that comparison out of the last two verses of the book of Job, where God set forth the great power of Leviathan and called him king of the proud. There is nothing on earth to be compared with him. He is made so as not to be afraid. He seeth every high thing below him, and is king of all the children of pride. But because he is mortal and subject to decay, as all other earthly creatures, and there is in heaven one he should stand in fear of, I should talk about his diseases and how he might dissolve. Well, Leviathan is called the mortal god. 
And just briefly, I would mention these qualities of the sovereign is knowledge of good and evil. He will decide what's right or wrong. So there won't be contention. There will be majority rule. You cannot accuse the sovereign. The sovereign is unpunishable. The sovereign determines the law, has the right of war and peace. He just goes down the list here. Now, we'll see Locke does try to change this, and he does limit the power of government. But the logic of the modern state in the name of mastery of nature does have the logic that can lead to the mastery of human beings. Now, one more thought then on to Spinoza. The significance of Spinoza is we have working out both the mechanism of modern philosophy, but more particularly its monism. That is, this idea that there is one reality that can be encompassed by the human mind, unable to make essential and substantial distinctions, the very notion of substance and being as already being pressured by these mathematical notions. Why? Why do we need, in the light of the mastery of nature, why do we even need this religious view that Spinoza develops? I think part of it is there is something unsatisfying about this Hobbesian state. There is the majesty of the sovereign. But at the end of the day, this new account of human life, although it avoids the state of war, the solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, there's still something low about the new view of human life. When you cut off any aspiration to higher wisdom in philosophy, certainly higher wisdom of religion, mock at the notion of the noble, there is something with this individual in his isolation and contentious and potentially at war with others who may have his right of self-preservation and rights under the civil law to pursue their own interest. And some basic notion of a contract theory and non-harm that one might say is not satisfying, that there is something about the human mind and heart which seeks a higher wisdom. Now Spinoza provides this metaphysical vision of the modern project. And this work of Spinoza may be the most difficult and inaccessible, although I'm probably going to say that again with Kant. But Spinoza writes the ethics following the geometrical method, using that mathematicism we see in Descartes, also used by Hobbes, and takes it quite literally. That is, he uses Euclidean method. He has axioms postulates, scolia, demonstrations and proofs, running through five books, giving this breathtaking, once one can see it, vision of human life under the aspect of eternity. He even says that we need to have the vision subspecie eternitatis. But as we'll see, that very notion of eternity is radically transformed. It's not the definition of Boethius used by Aquinas about the fullness of being beyond time, the simultaneous possession of life in its fullness. 
but it's rather an idea of the totality of material things without beginning and end. It's a position of pantheism, the identification of the all with God. Another one of the great phrases of Spinoza will be Deus Siva Natura, God or nature. That is, nature is God. God is nature. So again, using the mechanistic model, seeing the unity of all the interactions of things, that's the monism, that there's one substance, and we're all part of this great big one substance. Spinoza thinks as the human mind elevates itself away from opinion and passion up through science, physics, and then gets this third stage of knowledge, the intuitive vision of the whole, that it just will make one blessed and happy and full of joy. As a matter of fact, it is, again, a stoic-like acquiescence in the fatalism of the mechanical model. It's a acquiescence in the machine operating relentlessly and consciousness being some kind of parallel universe, being self-aware of one's vector or unit of power in the whole in which you may take joy in your own assertions of power but ultimately must have the higher detachment to see you're just one little bit on the cosmic stream and not worry about anything anymore. So that's sort of the grand vision. Now let me give you a few of the details here. Spinoza begins right at the beginning with a definition of substance. This is what's odd, is beginning with God. This is a priori. This is ontological proof with a vengeance which Thomas Aquinas in his wisdom saw was not the mode proper to the human approach to God through reason, which must start with the world and defects and argue through analogy to understand something about the existence and nature of God. Spinoza begins right at the beginning, the ethics part one concerning God definitions, and he lays them out like Euclid, a geometry of pantheism. Number one, that which is self-caused, whose essence involves existence, or that of which the nature is only conceivable as existent. I mean, this sounds like good stuff, you know. We're back to metaphysics and God. Spinoza was even called a God-intoxicated philosopher and was admired by many who saw this religious impulse taking shape in rational form. And then he goes on to say, by substance is that which is in itself and conceived through itself, a conception formed independently of any other conception. So again, you're starting to think, well, this sounds like he's on to the divine attributes. Of course, how is it that he starts here? How is it that one of his previous works on a theological treatise begins the tradition of higher criticism? and virtually removes the Bible from any serious consideration. And as we see in his system, there's no room for a personal God, for miracle or grace or any of those things. So it's a deceptive beginning. By God, this is definition six, I mean an absolute infinite, 
a substance consisting in infinite attributes, each of which expresses eternal and infinite essentiality. But what will come out of this extension is one of the infinite attributes. So God, extension, is an attribute of the divine being. In some way, God has a body. Now it's starting to get a little bit weird. And then he lays down a number of axioms, but I think where it starts to get interesting is over on his propositions, which he claims to prove, basically that there's one substance. Again, he's got to say that. It's Cartesian that there's one substance. The clear and distinct only allows one. It only allows you to posit this abstract notion of substance. Again, he says, extension and thought are attributes of God. So you see where this is going is everything will become part of God. Well, here, let me read you Proposition 14. Besides God, no substance can be granted or conceived. See, this is the pure univocal notion of being. If God is, it allows nothing else to be said to be. Its being is absorbed into God. Again, he gives elaborate proofs using this geometrical method, ending his proofs with QED. You've just got to see this and follow some of it through to see the boldness of his aspiration here. Now then he'll go on to say that God is a cause. Proposition 18. God is the indwelling and not the transient cause of all things, by which he means God is not separate from the universe, but as a cause, it's by dwelling within. It's that power that runs throughout the universe, which later romantic philosophers will talk about in more poetic terms, but something that runs through all of nature, as I said, it is nature. So God is the imminent, not the transcendent cause of the world. In the appendix to part one, he explains why teleology is not an acceptable concept in a mechanistic universe. He says telos and the notion of a final cause is due to our ignorance and it's nothing but a wish that human beings have that they project onto the universe. So that sort of sets up the basic mechanism of Spinoza's vision. Now as we get into further parts, we'll see there is no contingency. Everything happens by necessity. And thought is a matter of organizing your ideas or seeing your ideas parallel the mechanisms of the universe. He says, the order and connection of ideas is the same as the order and connection of things. Now, in this mechanistic world, there is, see, just force and appetite. There is nothing that allows human beings to be free. So what can human beings do as they start to see they're in this world that is determined? and that they're just one little mode of an infinite substance. Spinoza thinks he can turn it to good use, that as we become more understanding of the scientific pattern of causes, we become to accept the way things are, that it's necessary that they be, that we too have this 
desire for preservation, much like Hobbes, Spinoza uses this word conatus, this desire, this fundamental force that seeks to preserve itself. And through this, we can turn it actually to a rational religious account. He says religion is the idea of God. Whenever we desire or we are the cause, when we possess the idea of God, we have religion. So see, religion is just a development of science into a full worldview. As we come to see, we are just one little cog in the machine. How can this possibly be a source of joy? Well, I think for Spinoza, it is through this stoic notion of acquisition that one comes to see it cannot be any other way, that one has your own share in the power and mechanism of the universe, and just be able to live with that and to acquiesce. I'm looking for this passage here. He says, insofar as our mind knows itself and the body under the form of eternity, it has a knowledge of God and knows that it is in God and is conceived through God. So our freedom, he says, will become our knowledge of necessity. And he calls it the higher vision or the higher understanding of the universe. So he ends the ethics by saying, the wise man will not be disturbed in spirit, but will be conscious of himself and of God and of things by a certain eternal necessity which never ceases to be, but always possesses true acquiescence of his spirit. Now again, that is a difficult vision to first of all understand these rational propositions. And perhaps we do need to go later into some of the poets to understand this vision of modern pantheism. Certainly Alexis de Tocqueville saw pantheism as one of the dangers of the modern age because he said, in the modern age and in democracies in particular, he says, unity becomes an obsession and we look for it everywhere. Not content with the discovery that there is nothing in the world but one creation and one creator, he's embarrassed by the divisions of things and seeks to expand and simplify his conception by including God and the universe in one big whole. Now Tocqueville goes on to say that he thinks all those who appreciate the true nature of man's greatness should struggle against pantheism because of this tendency to acquiesce in the necessity of the whole. This dwindling of the significance of the human spirit as seeing it only as part of a whole. Tocqueville thought again would undermine the true meaning of the modern age, which is liberty. So in the name of liberty, we have this irony again that the view of the pantheist would first of all baptize or sanctify anything that happens as an exercise of power. It's the rawest form of realism, see, beyond Thucydides. But secondly, it just does not give the human being the status of dignity 
that the modern notion of rights requires. Well, now we must turn for a brief moment to Pascal, one of the greatest thinkers of the modern age, who retained his Catholic faith, although flirted with some extreme forms of it in Jansenism. Pascal, like Descartes, was a mathematician and scientist, certainly a greater scientist than Descartes, but also made his mark on mathematics, was very much taken with the mathematical ideal. But with Pascal, we have someone who rises up to give a reality check and calls the whistle, if you will, blows the whistle on some of the extremes and madness of the modern philosophers. He returns us, I would say, to that dialectical suppleness of a Plato or Socrates in asking questions and being pulled by the great questions of philosophy and wonder, knowing that there's a mystery, that the rationalism of modern philosophy is in some way perverting or denying. He wrote all these small little notes gathered together after his death called the pensee or thoughts. And I think a good one to start is he says the following, if he boasts, I humiliate him. If he is humble, I vaunt him and contradict him always until he comes to understand that he is an incomprehensible monster. Pascal is talking about this movement and counter-movement of a new mathematical dogmatism or claim for certitude and totality against that underlying skepticism. Pascal sees that neither one can nor should triumph. He says of Descartes, that Descartes is a boaster and has this pretension to write as if he could write of all that is or the principles of mathematical philosophy and figure out the totality. Certainly Spinoza's grand vision would also be something that Pascal would question by turning to other ancient sources as well as the Christian tradition. For example, on that Stoic side of Spinoza, Pascal has the following. The Stoic says, go back into yourselves. It's there you will find peace. It's not true. Others say, go out of yourself. Seek happiness by amusing yourself. A Hobbes, perhaps. But that is not true. We are prey to a disease. Pascal won't let the human being just sit and be content with either its dogmatism or its skepticism. He says, what kind of monster is man? What a novelty, what a portent, what a chaos, what a mass of contradictions, what a prodigy, judge of all things, a ridiculous earthworm who is the repository of truth, a sink of uncertainty and error the glory and the scum of the world. Who shall unravel such a tangle? Pascal loves to talk about the grandeur and the misery of man. 
and sees the imbalance in modern philosophy being buffeted back and forth. I think one of the best lines as he goes through the new sense of the infinite cosmos, and he says the eternal silence of these infinite spaces terrifies me, and he meditates upon the disproportion of the infinities. He says, what is man in nature, a void in comparison with the infinite? but a whole in comparison with the void, a middle term between nothing and all, infinitely far from grasping extremes. The end of things, the origins of things are hidden from him in an incomprehensible mystery. He's equally incapable of seeing the void whence he comes and the infinite in which he is engulfed. Pascal returns us to that ancient sense of the in-between, or the Greeks called it the metaxi, that we're neither beast nor God, but the human is to be in-between. So Spinoza's grand vision of pantheistic unity, derived in some way from Lucretius, which is repeated to this day in someone like Edward O. Wilson, who writes the book Consilience, in which he claims biology will give the complete explanation of all phenomena. And Wilson says we must have a new poetry of evolution. Pascal says it seems that God desired to make the mystery of our nature intelligible to us, but hid the knot so high, or better, hid the knot so low that we are incapable of reaching it. So it's not the proud exertion of our reason, but the simple submission of reason that we can come to know ourselves. And to Hobbes, I think Pascal would show us this joyless quest for joy, the diversions that constitute daily life, just ignoring the grandeur of man. He would see the arbitrariness of custom and laws and the middling position of justice humans can get. And at the end of the day, he thinks we are counterpoised between the two infinites and cannot know which direction to turn. So one of his most famous arguments is a wager on the existence of God in which he says we don't have evidence either way. So why not see the benefits of belief in God? But at the end of the day, the end of his life, we know that Pascal sewed into his coat a piece of paper in which he wrote these burning words, fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not the philosophers, not the God of the philosophers and the scholars, certitude, certitude, emotion, joy, and peace, oblivion of the world and of everything except God, greatness of the human soul. And he goes on in his praise of faith. Pascal makes an assertion of true faith, a man of great intellect, skilled in mathematics and science, flames out as a great witness to faith and true human dignity. So we will turn next to Locke to see how the grand vision of Spinoza is brought down into a new form. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. 
please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.